brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY, and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Donna Cranston, welcome to the show, sweetheart. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I mean, it's fitting. I was just saying we had Doc G's episode come out today, and we have had a lot of individuals since me going down um, because of Defenders of Freedom asking me about the treatments we did and how do they get help and what are signs and symptoms. And I said, before we even get into any of that, I said, we need to talk to the individual that's responsible for veterans actually getting the treatment that they so need. And, and that really comes down to you. And, um, I figured it was no better way than to have you on the show and really pull apart your life so that people can understand why you are such a driven individual, um, and why you care so deeply about everything that you do. So number one, congratulations on becoming a grandma. Thank you. Thank you. It's exciting. It is. And I saw those baby pictures and I want to bite their cheeks. So it's, it's yeah. fine. It's normal yeah. behavior. Yeah. Um, very kissable cheeks for sure. There's something about when you become a mom, you want to take their tiny feet and put them in your mouth. Is that a thing for you? Or is it yes. just <laughs> No, those little toes, they're just so perfect. I love them and kiss the bottom of their feet. Oh my oh. gosh. It's, it's so I don't, sweet. I don't know why I, I sound like a sociopath when I say that, but it's true. When you become a mom, there's something about their feet where you just want to put the whole thing in your mouth. And I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. They're, I don't know either. They're just, it's, they're just precious. They are. The innocence is still there. You can feel it with them. Yeah. And they're so dependent on everything. You know, just oh everything is, it's just precious. I love it. We're the only animal on the world born so incompetent. It's unbelievable. Thank God we have other people around because my dear, but that's why people like you exist too, right? They exist because there's a need. And I found out about you through a gentleman named Ron, mm -hmm. who I found out through Griff. And it seems like you have surrounded yourself with not only individuals you've helped, but you've surrounded yourself with people who are the type of individuals who will go at to, to, to the ends of the earth to help each other. And, and you started Defenders of Freedom what, 17 years ago now? Yes. Okay. Yes. In 2004. So why don't you tell everyone how Defenders of Freedom kind of came about and why you felt a, a need for it to exist? Okay. Well, at the time in 2004, my son, Matt was in Iraq and um, I had found out that DFW airport, which I lived 10 minutes from was going to be one of two hubs to receive the army's, um, their, their program for their R and R for the guys to come home for one week at their mid mid um, tours. So I, it was a no brainer for me. Of course, I'm going to go out to the airport and greet these troops. Um, I missed day one. We had just moved back to the Dallas area. I didn't know very many people and I knew about the program, but I, all the calls I made were dead ends. And so I assumed I would figure out about it at some point. And I was on the treadmill on day one. And of course the local news did a big story about the troops arriving and they'd be coming in every day and they left a number. So I jumped off the treadmill, called and said, I want to come be a part of that. And they said, yeah, come out the next day. And when I did, and I, started shaking the hands of our troops, 
I knew that I knew that I knew my life had changed that day. I didn't know what that was going to look like. I cleared my schedule what, and I planned my days around being at that airport every day. Who knew it was going to turn into seven years and nine months, but it did. And um, it, it just became my life. And so um, in, as I was out there meeting the troops, I then joined the USO so I could go on the secure side because after two weeks, they would come back, we would put them on the planes, and then they would go back to Kuwait and then into Iraq and Afghanistan. So as I was meeting all these young soldiers, I just kept asking them, are you getting good care packages? And for the most part, many of them said, yes, they were. But there were several that said, no, hey, we could use this or we don't have anything. Others had everything they needed. Um, so I just started taking their names. And within no time, as you can imagine, we had 300 troops come at that time, about 300 a day coming through. So um, I, get, I got way more than I could handle super quick. And so I started asking a lot of the other volunteers, do you guys want to help with this? And everybody wanted to help. And what I realized was most of the people supported our troops, but they didn't know how. If they didn't have someone in their life that they were connected to, they wanted to help, they just didn't know how. So I started Defenders of Freedom really as an avenue to connect the community to our troops. And now it's moved more to the veterans. And you've grown, I mean, you've grown it. You went from care packages to, I know you were helping provide financial support for individuals so they didn't end up becoming yeah. homeless. Yes. Can you take me through the process of watching individuals going to and coming back from combat? Because the reason I bring that up is, is because there's a, there's a really iconic photo uh, that rolls around on social media and it's of a World War, it's a World War II vet. And it's this photo of him being taken uh, before he went out and then the photo at the end of the war. And it is a drastic, stark reminder of what war will do to an individual's body rather than I'm not talking mm -hmm. explosive wise. I'm talking emotional tolls. Yeah. So for you, what was that like, though? Well, what we started seeing the longer we were at the airport every day. Um, within no time, really, we could see the difference in their faces when they came through that line. Um, we, it was a gauntlet, really. We had people on either side and they would move through and we would clap and shake hands, that kind of thing. And what we started seeing uh, for the guys that were in doing the, the city to city or block to block, door to door, just foot patrols, some of those people didn't want to come through that line. You know, they would be um, four days ago, they were maybe doing a patrol in Baghdad. And now here they are walking through all these people and they don't know who's friendly. Those were the kinds of things that we learned. We could see it in their faces. Um, and so I started asking questions. I'm, I'm pretty aggressive on that kind of thing, assertive, whatever you want to call it. I don't know, but I felt super protective of all of them because so many of them were my son's ages. And so I just felt that motherly instinct take over. And so we started coming up with different things that were like, we eventually put stanchions up so that people couldn't, couldn't go past the stanchions because the, it wasn't everyone, but for the ones that were struggling to come through that line, they needed to feel safe when they came through. And it was already stressful for them. And we might have people that wanted to reach out and give them a hug. And just coming at them with their arms open was very um, intrusive for some of the for the some of the troops. And so I remember one day I was given one a ride into another terminal so he could make his flight. Um, he only had like a 20 minute layover. So we would put them in the car sometime and just drive them there so that they could get to that flight pretty quickly. And he got in the car and he started crying. And I said, what happened? Are you okay? And, and, and that wasn't uncommon that they would get emotional because it had been so moving for them to be back and to have that welcome. But this young man, it was different. He was super upset and he said, I almost hit that lady. And I said, what lady, what does she do? And he said, she just wanted to hug me. And he said, I, when I saw her arms come at me, it was such a threat 
because, and again, he's one that had just been uh, patrolling the streets in Baghdad. And so I heard that and I said, you know what, thanks for sharing that. We're going to change what we do in there. The next day is when we had stanchions and we, we just started telling people, we, at first we would just go up to the individuals that were there all the time and say, hey, we, these guys need space. This just happened. We need to respect them to where we ended up going to a megaphone. And when we did the announcements, I got very direct and said, please don't initiate hugs with them. If they want to hug you, by all means, grab them and squeeze them real tight, but don't initiate it because a lot of them don't want it. I mean, I ended up having to be that direct because while people were there and they, they were there to support the troops, what we found a lot of people were there for their own fulfillment, you know, and that the people that had to give hugs, that's not about the troops, that's about you. And so we had a, we just had to make sure that we always kept it about them because for them, it was the first day back on American soil. Even though some of us were out there hundreds of times, didn't matter, it wasn't about us, it was about them. So that was one of my first understandings where we began to see in their faces and in their eyes, the ones who had been out I mean, you could almost pick them out of the line as they were coming through. So I started seeing that very early in 2004. I started, well, I started on day two, which was in June of 2004. By July, we could pick those out. And I'll tell you who really helped us a lot were the Vietnam veterans, because we would go to them and ask them, you know, um, hey, will you talk to this guy? He's kind of struggling. And that was one of the best secondary outcomes of that welcome home program was the healing that took place for the Vietnam veterans who were able to be out there for the younger veterans and um, it, or for the younger troops. It, it was no one expected that to be as great as it ended up being for those Vietnam veterans. Well, think about it. I guess if you backtrack, I mean, Vietnam veterans didn't really have a welcome home uh, the way that you wanted to give these veterans because back then there was a, it was a different type of war. It was a different type of uh, propaganda machine. Those individuals came home and were, were given a very different reception. And yes. that's, you know, for them, it almost gave them, gave them a moment of redemption of, mm -hmm. Hey, maybe these people are caring a little more than they used to. And, and that's a win. I mean, for, for the Vietnam vets, it was really, really crazy. Um, not to jump forward here, we'll go back, but I did know during the Afghan pullout last year, the amount of Vietnam vets that reached out to me to just mm -hmm. say, I'm feeling it's okay. I know what that felt like. I understand that pain. We went yeah. through the same exact yeah. thing. Um, and for them to see history repeat itself, but then also to have another generation that was much younger than them to reach out and be like, I know the feeling, I know the pain. You know, and that and that kind of gives some solidarity because World War II, you had everyone come home and everyone was celebrated. Then you had a gap there. You had a gap in war where people were not welcomed home and were not seen as value afterwards. And then skip to the Afghan Iraqi vets. And there was a, a unity understanding, a mindset understanding, a hive mind mind mindset of these people are going to protect our country. They're going to come home and we're going to help support them, at least for the very early parts of the war. Towards mm -hmm. the end of it, it obviously, you know, kind of drug off and everyone's understood what happened since. But when you when you decided to do this and start putting your effort into being a DFW like that, I mean, that not only had to be a toll on you, but cost wise, how did you how did you make that all work? Um, it wasn't really a toll on me. It was energizing for me. I loved it. Um, but I just, it was a good time in my life. Uh, my kids were in college or Matt was in Iraq. Um, actually at one point I had one in jail, but, um, we won't go down that road, but, um, <laughs> so I was actually looking for something to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was kind of like, what am I going to do with my life now? You know, the kids are all out of the house. And, um, and so it, for me, I would get out there sometimes at 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, and I wouldn't go home till 12 or 14 hours later. Tim was working in Chicago um, for several days a week and then coming home. And so it was just perfect for me to have all that time 
to be out there to, to dedicate to him. So, um, and Tim had a good income at the time. So for me to just be able to, to pour into that and go shopping, I, I ended up shopping at Walmart more than anything um, and learned of so many products there that I never knew, but I would get a list of things. And that was one of the benefits also about being at the airport. I could say to them, tell me what you need and tell me what you want, because I learned that not all things were equal over there. Some people were never inside the wire. Some people were always inside the wire. So I, I did the care packages really by request and said, you tell me what you need and tell me what you want. And then I will prioritize best I can. And because I was out there and I could talk to them and learn about their situations, I had a little notepad that I stuck in my pocket and I would just write down what their um, outpost was like and no microwave. So don't send a microwavable food and, you know, just more package stuff. So it, it really um, ended up just being, I don't know, it was great. And, and so many of the volunteers were giving me money. The airport actually gave me a space downstairs from where we were greeting the troops. It was an old train station. And I had that for, for probably a good five years out there. And wow. so it was, it was just great to be able to go right downstairs, pack care packages, take them to over to the airport um, post office and, and, you know, get it out of there. Um, so it, it, it all just worked out. I don't know. I, I didn't plan any of it. It just all worked out great because I think it was the passion of taking care of them. When did that change? When did you start to see, you know, Defenders of Freedom really start to get traction? What year did that kind of come around where you started getting a ton of volunteers to work with you and people started seeing you as a really big charity? Um, I, honestly, I don't know, if, or maybe it's just me. I don't really see us as a really big charity. I see us as um, just meeting needs. And so I don't know if I'm probably the best person to answer that question because I, I always had support. And I think being at the airport helped and a lot of people did help and step in. Um, but I never, I'm, and I'm still this way, I don't look at what we've done enough because there's still so much more to do. I, there's so much out there ahead of us. Um, I fell into the uh, financial assistance from an AW2, which is an advocate for wounded warriors at the Fort Campbell um, Wounded Transition Unit. When she reached out that and asked if I could help a wounded guy, I knew I wanted to. I put it in our mission statement, but I didn't know how in the world I was ever going to do that. I didn't live near a hospital uh, or didn't live near a base. And so I had no idea what what would transpire, but that ended up pushing us into helping with the financial assistance, which grew into a whole lot of different understanding for me of what our troops were actually going through when they came home and when they transitioned. And that was probably as early as maybe 2007, I think. Um, so I don't know, it just caught all kind of, one thing kind of happened after another and and I just tried to follow it and help where the, the calls were coming in. And I don't even know how a lot of people got my number. I, honestly, I don't. Other than I did pass my card out to all these people at the airport. And I was always telling them, you let me know what you need. Um, but I wanted to not just concentrate on our troops in Texas because it made no sense to me they all wear an American flag on their shoulder. So to me, it was about taking care of wherever a need was, not a state, which still gets me in trouble sometimes when I get restricted funding or whatever, not really trouble, but it, it, I feel like my hands are tied because just because you were at a base in Texas doesn't mean you're a Texas soldier. It just means you were stationed there. So that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Cause you take people from everywhere. I mean, you've, you took, you took me. I'm Canadian. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we've helped veterans, I think, in 34 different states. Um, and that's just word of mouth. It's because of our, I guess, because of our website, because a lot of them came through the airport. I don't, I don't really know. Um, the, the veterans will have somebody that they served with and say, hey, this person needs, needs help. Can you help them? And I don't ask where they're from or anything. It's just, yeah, if, if they need help, have them call me. 
It's, it's pretty incredible because I got the opportunity to go to one of your events when I was down there with the resiliency uh, brain center. And I got to go to one of the, uh, the dinners you had and, oh my gosh, I talk about it a lot. Cause I get really excited. We, I say we, cause myself, uh, Jason, another, uh, ranger was going through the program at the same time. And, and I've talked about this since, but there's things that I, you guys do that you do so differently. And I want to acknowledge that because I've been to plenty of different charity events for so-called very large organizations. And the reason I call you a large organization is because you, you may not be uh, an individual who makes six figures off the people of donations, but you're the one who's, thank you for that, by the way. Um, But you are an individual who has massive impact with every dollar, every dollar that you guys get donated, it goes to helping individuals and it goes to running events and doing these types of things. And some of the things that I noticed uh, very much in particular with the event we went to, um, not only do you bring in like incredible speakers to have like real honest conversations, but you bring together a community in a way that I've never seen you. When you start an event, you guys sing the national anthem. First off, let me acknowledge that because for the listeners that are outside of the United States, which is most of you are American, but for the, a lot of you, what you don't understand is organizations outside of the United States that I've ever met do not do things like this. They do not acknowledge things like the national anthem. They do not put the tables out for the fallen soldiers. They don't do those things. And those are the things that make a huge impact. When I walked in the room and saw the table up at the front set for two people and you, and you set it just like they would be there. And mm-hmm. you guys have it a name for that. What, what, what do you call that exactly? I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, I Isn't it the Fallen Soldier is, Memorial? Yeah, the fa- so that's, that's, is that what it, yeah. So the Fallen Soldier Memorial, and that's literally like you set out a plate just like they would be if they were there. And that's, and that's for those that we've lost to let them know that they're not forgotten. You, st- the entire room, when they said you're going to stand up and do the national anthem, everyone stood up, took their hats off, put their hands over their hearts. I haven't seen stuff like that since 9-11. I have not seen individuals and charitable organizations take initiative. I've seen things like where people take challenge coins and throw them on the table and say, there you go. There's no respect put on the programs, the individuals and, and the, the, the things that you're trying to help individuals with, which is making them feel supported and making them feel like they have a community to feel safe in. And that's something that's a massive differentiator of Defenders of Freedom versus other organizations that I've ever attended to. I'm telling you right now, that stuff is not taken seriously. And it mattered so much to me that it brought me to tears because I have, you felt the energy in that room. You felt people, they were there to help those soldiers and those veterans. And they meant it when they said it, they didn't just show up with their dollars, but they showed up with their energy, their positivity, their connections, individuals that wanted to see change in the community. And then you auctioned off guns. So I was like, (laughs) what? There was a gun that had the, was the constitution inscribed on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know what, Kelsey, I can't imagine not starting that way. First of all, out of gratitude for my country, but, and that flag, that means the world to me. Um, It's the core of my foundation, but to the men and women who have stood in the gaps, both those who have given their lives and those who continue to give with their, with their sacrifices and their injuries, their unseen injuries, all that, the cost of us being able to do that by so many is so high. I can't imagine starting our events that we're trying to honor them without those things. I mean, that's why we put the picture of the fallen up also and take a moment of silence for all of them. Um, Because it's, it's, um, it's not guaranteed. Our freedoms are not guaranteed. And if we don't stop and pause in the beginning to remember those things and to to have our national anthem, then we're not doing it right, I don't think. I mean, those are just, we won't, we, on the agenda, those, there's a protocol. We just do it every single time. And I can't imagine having an event without those things. That's what's crazy to me is that I, 
have been to Canadian events. I have been to other events where I've never seen that. And I've seen the opposite of just disrespect, in my opinion. I've spoken very publicly about how I feel about that. And what blew my mind is that you're right. Why would it be done any other way? Why shouldn't it be yeah. done any other way? And, and when yeah. I talked to you about it, you're like, you looked at me like I was crazy. You were like, no, we have to. But I think that's something people outside of the United States aren't really aware of. There's plenty wow. of countries that were active in this war for a long period of time. And if you were to go on the streets and ask an individual civilian about Afghanistan in Canada, you're, you're going to get a very mixed review. You're not going to get the blanket statement of it's our freedom and we're there to support. It is not that way. And the United States takes it to a new level of respect. And I'm grateful for that because without organizations like Defenders of Freedom, you would not get people the help that they really, you would not be getting people the support that they really need uh, if it wasn't coming from individuals inside the community. We've seen what government does. We've seen how yeah. difficult they make it for individuals to get support. When did it shift from financial aid into more research around and more work around TBIs and, and the heavy duty lifting that you're doing in that part of the community now? Well, when I was introduced to functional neurology in 2013, I was so happy to know that there was an answer for helping with TBIs because between seven and 12, I had taken hundreds of calls of troops that were some still active, some were transitioning, some were in, still in the WTUs. And I was so frustrated at what wasn't getting done to help them. I'm like, how can this be? I mean, it was my introduction just by immersion, really, of talking to so many of, of how inadequate our system is to take care of, of the TBI injury. And I was also frustrated that we were watching so many die. And at the time, I didn't realize how much I believe TBI contributes, contributes to that, even over PTS, but I didn't know what the answer was. And, and so when I was introduced to that in 2013 by my other friend um, and who needed some veterans to go through on a program that she had, it just was like, oh my gosh, there is an answer to this. And so I kind of kept, I, and that's when I met Dr. G and have kept in touch with her all the time through these years. Uh, and I tried sending guides to her on my own when she was out in Colorado. And then when she decided to move back here and I was seeing such good results, I went to my board in 2019 and said, we need to shift our focus. Um, and first of all, I had done the emergency financial assistance for 14 years. I was burnt out on it. I was tired of the entitlement mentality that had crept into the veteran community. And I was tired of sifting through, okay, who's just feeling entitled? Who's really legit? And I just didn't want to do it anymore. When I felt like this was such an unmet need, and I believe it's the biggest contributor to, to veteran suicide among combat veterans with TBI. That's, I, I do qualify that because we do still have a lot that are killing themselves that don't have TBIs, and I don't have any answers for that. Um, but for TBI, that's when I first um, was introduced to it, and then we shifted our focus almost entirely in 2020. Um, I still will do a little financial assistance, and that is helping if they can't come because they've got to take two weeks off work and they can't pay their bills. I'll pay their bills that month so that they don't have any pressure and I just want them to come and work on themselves while they're in the treatment. And that's true. I mean, my God, I've seen, I've seen you go out of your way left, right, and center to help individuals. I've made calls to you before and I've never seen somebody take it so seriously. It's you're, you're arguably more reactive than a suicide hotline woman. Well, I, I would agree. Cause I've had a lot of conversations with guys that got put on hold on the suicide hotline or yeah. hung up on and and we have lives at stake. People's lives are hanging in the balance and we have to be reactive. And one of the things with financial assistance that I learned that I've just carried over into this whole TBI thing, when people are struggling, 
if you can give them hope, just a little bit of hope, and I'll never give false hope. I will tell them I can't help them if I can't, but I'll never give them false hope. But if you can give them hope, then that gives them a little bit more time and, and a little bit more, um, um, what's the word? Um, I don't know, they, they'll persevere a little bit longer. Yeah. And then if I can help with whatever details why we're persevering so that they know, just hang on a little bit longer, we've not only saved a life, We've impacted families for generations to come. And to me, that's that's in my forethoughts every single phone call that I take. It's not just about getting them help. It's about helping a whole family and impacting a, a family for, for a long time. Children that still get to have their parent in their life and spouses that don't have to raise children by themselves if we can save a life. Um, and so... Yeah, I take that very seriously. You're not joking. And she's not kidding. <laughs> she will hound your ass. If she thinks you need to be in a treatment program, she will. And I think that's the difference with you, Donna, is there's a there's a face to you, but you you are exactly who you say you are. And I think that needs to be acknowledged, especially in this day and age, especially with social media, especially with plenty of people out there saying who they, you know, putting this perception out that they this is who they say they are, when in reality, that's not. It's not at all. And it gives people false hope. And that's one of the biggest killers, I believe, as well, is we give people this idea that they can reach out for help. And when they do, we turn them down because of some type of stipulation or some type of you didn't fall under the criteria perfectly. That doesn't that's not how real life works. And you yeah. see past that. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I think I do because, um, well, first of all, my parents instilled that in, in me. You know, my dad was in the Pacific during World War II, my mom was a teenager. I grew up hearing those stories. I mean, it was part of their life as much as this is a part of my life. And when I learned of many of the sacrifices of our, of our post 9-11 veterans, because I saw so many of them, hundreds and thousands of them at the DFW airport, and you hear their stories and you learn of their sacrifices, how can I not give them the best? How can I, if, and I made a, a commitment early on, if I can't give them my best, then I'm no better than the VA system. We don't even know, need to go down that road and every veteran will understand that. I, then I'm going to get out of this business because I'm going to be better than that. And we're going to give them answers. And sometimes it may not be the answer they want, but I'll never leave them hanging ever. And, and I just feel that I owe them that from the depths of, who I am because they've put their lives on the line from, from my freedoms. And whether you agree with whatever wars, it doesn't matter. It's the uniform that has kept our country as strong as it is and, and been a, a, a beacon of light for people all over the world. So I just, I just feel, and we're failing them. We're, we open our borders and we give people from all over the world better entitlements than the benefits our troops have earned. They're getting slighted in so many ways. And I just got angry about it. And um, yeah, it's very personal to me. Well, I'm glad it is. And it, cause it's going to take people like you to change it. We have no different up here. We, we take refugees left, right, and center, which I think every country should, but a lot of them are getting upwards of four or $5,000 a month. And the one in three of the homeless in Vancouver are vets. So, I mean, it's really about where, where the priority lies and where they, you know, the government can make the most money. And, and at the end of the day, you would think that they would want to keep an investment, the amount of money it costs, you know, it, it really takes to train someone, let alone a special operator, but just to train a soldier, you would think that keeping them or helping them would be at the top of the priority. Exactly. And, and giving them the best. And one of the things I've learned with this TBI treatment, if the DOD would step in uh, or I want to say, I don't want them to take it over because they'll screw it up eventually. But if they would even <laughs> contract with the doctors who are doing it, they could extend the careers of so many of these veterans that have TBI that they're drugging up and, and just put them out medically retiring them. And then the VA doesn't always want to 
give them their ratings because I basically think they don't want to pay them. So they just want to go away. And mm-hmm. it, it's frustrating to me. Why, why does it take, you know, just some individual like me to get angry enough to say, no, we need to be doing better for this. And I'm not the only one. I mean, there are many people that are doing a lot, um, but that's kind of where, where I've come from with the whole thing. The differences between you and other individuals is you're a mom and those moms are terrifying. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And that's, I think that's been one of my strengths. Um, I had three sons that kind of put me through hell in high school and I learned to um, do the tough love thing. And I can do that with our veterans too, Um, men and and the women. And I, I have learned too, I think the women are a lot more stubborn in a lot of ways than the men are. Um, yeah, I, I do think that's true. And I, I think sometimes it is that mama bear, I've got this, I can take care of this, you know, I, because we do, we multitask, I think better. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's, I think it's been one of my strengths. And I, like you said earlier on, I will hand them once they're on my radar. I don't let them off my radar. If I really feel that, that they need the help, I, I'll just kind of constantly be at them. And what I've learned a lot of times their walls are high, but once they trust me and they know that I'm here for the right reason, that I'm really going to take care of them, then they really will start responding. And, um, and if their lives improve, Hey, it's a win, right? I don't need to be right, but I just want, I want the best for them. Well, and that's it. You don't need to be right, but goddamn, isn't it ever nice when you are? <laughs> <laughs> and most of the time I am on this one, on this one thing, you know, I, I really, and I, again, I don't need to be, but, but I just know what I know. And right. It's not because right. I have a degree in any of it, but when you work, and this is one of the things I don't understand about the VA because they sure have a lot more uh, veterans down their pipe than I've ever had. But when you talk to so many people and you keep hearing the same story over and over and over. It's not rocket science. And I didn't need a degree to figure any of this out, that uh, we have a problem and I think there's a solution to it. And so that's just kind of persistent, I guess. Yeah. But persistence gets things done. And that's the one thing that I, I actually spoke about on the mental health Monday today. Somebody said to me, she's like, you know, though, there's this, there's this person I want to have on my show. And, and I said, so stalk them. She's like, sorry. I said, get on Instagram and stalk their ass, get in their DMS and message them. She's like, yeah. I said, no, I've done that for a year to people and it works. Persistence works. And if you want to save someone's life and you want somebody to be on the face of this earth and you want them to be a parent still, and you want them to be giving the world the the light that you know is in there, you got to be persistent. Sometimes it's not as easy as just sending one email and expecting them to jump on the opportunity. They need to know that they're worth it as well. Absolutely. And you know what else, Kelsey? I think one of the other successes that I've had is just meeting them where they are and acknowledging their pain and that they're not alone in it. Because as you know, some of these, these high alpha personality males they are hard nuts to crack, but just saying to them, Hey, you're not alone in this or giving them what they're going through without them even telling you, not because you know that well, except it's not, it's not that, um, diverse within the injury itself, you know, presents itself individually, but there's a, a overall, um, uh, umbrella of the, of the, uh, manifestations of the injury. And so if you just start talking to them about some of that, it's like, yeah, you know, you're not the only one. I've heard this so many times. It validates them. And that's when they start letting up a little bit. Like, how'd you know that? Well, because I've heard it hundreds of times, you're not alone. And I think that has been another, and I never bring judgments. I'm, I never judge one of our troops on what they're going through. I'll try to help them but I'm not going to judge them and tell them they're wrong or anything like that because, you know, they're not there by choice many, many, many times. Well, and a lot of times, especially with the veterans that you're dealing with now, it's one thing when you're dealing with the, you know, going through the very beginning of Defenders of Freedom, where you provided a 
a comfort, a home away from home, a way for individuals to feel like they were still being cared about while they were off fighting the war. But then you kind of transition to ways to, to help individuals at home and then moving into TBIs. Most of the time, we don't even know a lot of us even have them until it gets so bad. And so there's no judgment. And it's not that any of us want to be in those positions or feeling as bad as we're feeling. We're just told for a long time, number one, either suck it up, you're being weak, or we don't know the signs and symptoms of things that are actual major issues. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're not judgmental at all. I can attest to that. My God, you're the least judgmental person I think I might've ever met. It's quite concerning. And, you know, it is because I care. Um, I just had a guy that just finished brain treatment last week and I was out here um, for the birth of my grandson. So I didn't get to be with this guy, but I've been after him for almost three years. And I said to him, I'd like you to go through brain treatment. And he's like, I don't need it. And I was like, yeah, you do. And he's like, no, I don't. And I say, why do you think you stutter? He's like, I don't stutter. I, I, I don't stutter. And I was like, yeah, you do. And so <laughs> I, I can't wait to get back. And then he told me one time, I always feel like you're watching me to see if I'm if I'm doing something because you think I need brain treatment. But being forthright with it and bringing it to their attention, because one of the things I've learned, too, is that become, gradually becomes their new norm. And if it were just dumped on them all at once, they'd be going, wait, something's wrong. But because they slowly move into it, they think it it, it is their new norm. It just doesn't have to be. It's the way they've, you know, it's presented itself to them. You've adapted, right? Your body adapts to whatever the, the ailment or issue is. And you just go, ah, it's normal. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't it's- have to be that way. No, it doesn't. And I think it takes, like I said, it's going to take people like you and Doc G to, to bring that to the forefront, but you started working with, how did you come about? How did you find Doc G? How did that whole relationship start to go? So I have a dear friend, her name is Kara Williams, and she has an organization called Brain Treatment Foundation. She got a million dollar grant and was needed veterans to put through brain treatment. Um, And at that time, it was Carrick Brain Center in Dallas. Um, They have since closed and all that. But Doc G was going through her residency there. And because I had so many veterans in, I would go hang out, just kind of watch what was going on, kind of like I do now. Um, and I met her and just, we just struck a good, a good friendship. And so um, I just, I don't know, we just kind of moved, stayed in touch. And when I had some guys that I had funding to send through, because that really wasn't my forte, um, but I had enough. And I had a guy that was real suicidal and called her and said, hey, can I get this guy in? And his life changed. And we had that happen several times that I just fully funded it, that's when I began to say, you know what, this is what we need to do because there's not enough of this going on. Kara still does it. Um, She's just overwhelmed herself, but um, she still does it. She's still a very good friend of mine. We've referred people back and forth many times. Um, And so that, that was my introduction to it. What a great introduction that was too, because the, the TBI clinic that the um, resiliency brain center, the way that they run things and how they do things. The, the, one of the biggest things I noticed when I was down there was, yes, you're like a little canary. You're around. You're always around. <laughs> you're the canary that sits there, does her thing, but you're there. You're always around. And then you have other individuals that come in and you're, you know, constantly adapting and showing people the programs and you have Tom yeah. come in and film. And it's so that other individuals can see the the reality of what you do there, it is intensive work. It's, it's the work is no joke. It's not, it looks simple until you're doing it. And then you learn about the death sticks and the spinny death chair. And you learn about all of these things that really make massive impacts on how you feel on a daily basis. And I think that's the other thing though, Donna, as much as it is, you're, you're, you're finding the people you're being persistent. You show up when we're there. And that's yeah. huge because you're not just mm-hmm. sending us to another place to go deal with another thing, just like the VA would have done. You care. And I think that's why people are so open to you. Well, I think you're right um, because I do care. And one of the things, and put yourself in my place, I get veterans on the phone who are in crisis, who um, who are at usually at the bottom when they come in there. 
I try to be there day one to introduce them to the docs because I've usually had the first conversation with them. And I want it to be a warm handoff because I don't know why, but everybody's nervous. Everybody is nervous when they come in the first day. And so if I can do that, but then to come back and to watch little and, you know, quite well, their steps in healing are small, but the impact of it is great. And I can come in from day to day and I can see a difference. And I try to skip a day or two. Um, but when I come back and I see that they've, uh, that they've mastered something and that they're sleeping better. I mean, I've had guys that came in that were sleeping 45 minute segments, three and four times a night. And when I hear that they slept four hours, I mean, you just don't know the joy that that brings to me. So as I'm watching people's lives change, it's, it's very uh, fulfilling and joyful for me. And it's what keeps me moving. And keeps me, you know, energized, I think is the probably the best word to continue to go out and, and get funding and get more veterans in and all that. I just, I love it. I absolutely love it. What's the long-term plan for D, uh, DOF? Um, I, you know, people ask me all that, those kind of questions. I don't really know. My longest is, I would say, to get everybody through that we can get through. If I can get that, and I know there's over, I think it's estimated over 470,000 post 9-11 troops have a brain injury. So my work's cut out for me for a long time. Um, I still feel pretty young because I say I'm 64 years young and I don't know. I don't have an an end plan. I don't have a succession plan. I just know that I'm so in the moment right now. Um, I love it. I think we've got more veterans than we have dollars. So we'll be doing this for a long time. And I'm fine with that. Perfecting it. I think, I think probably my biggest vision right now is watching or helping Dr. G duplicate this with other doctors that she has talked to so that we can get more of the clinics um, out there and that are on the same protocols that she uses. Cause I personally think it's a not that it can't be perfected more, um, but she that's one of the things I love about her and Jim. They're always looking to better the program, but we have to have doctors on board with the same mindset. And so the more of those that we can get on, then that's what I want to do so that we can get more veterans taken care of. You're you're exactly right. When you're when you're looking at the providers that are giving the care. If somebody is cold with no bedside manner and can't handle face melting conversations, they have no business treating vets. There's, um, there was a 15 minute overlap where Jason and I were exposed to a civilian, uh, during our treatment. <laughs> and within that 15 minute of his overlap, there was a complaint because Jason and I must've been talking about something. Not even anything that crazy, but something enough of something that it, it to a civilian's ear, it made them feel un- uncomfortable and yeah. it was not intentional, but that is the difference is you need to be able to find providers and individuals that have a mindset and a way to look past certain things or have an understanding of certain types of conversations and not take it personally, because that's what it's going to take. It's going to take people just like Doc G and Jay and Doc Michelle to, to literally sit down and teach these other individuals, you know, if they say these things, you know, they're, they're jokes, they're, this is how they cope. This is their way of dealing. Like there's, it takes a very specific individual. And so that's going to be, I think one of your biggest tests. I mean, I think when enough people hear about what DOF is doing and with, with the resiliency clinic, I think there's no reason it can't be duplicated and further on. It's just about finding the right people. I think. I agree. I agree. And she does have, um, I think three docs, three other docs that she's already working with. I think they're kind of in the process of getting all the equipment they need for their clinic. Uh, one of them has already done. In fact, he was at Carrick when she was there. Wonderful guy that worked with the veterans and loved him. He's just trying to get all of his equipment and all that, but, but you're right. And understanding that and being able to, um, like, you know, she does the veterans in the morning for the most part and the Mm -hmm. civilians in the afternoon, just because it is a different, it is a different mentality. And, um, if the docs are okay with that, 
then I think it'll, I think it'll be great. I really do. Um, and so that's probably my biggest plan right now is trying to incorporate, help her incorporate that um, and, and be able to help as many and affect as many as we can. So if people wanted to like support Defenders of Freedom or help you in some types of way, volunteer, or how, how do people go about that? How do they reach out? Don't you dare put your cell phone number on this right now. Give me something <laughs> that's not your cell phone number. <laughs> okay. So our website is defendersoffreedom.us. And uh, my email is Donna at defendersoffreedom.us. It's pretty simple. We're on Instagram. We're on uh, Facebook. We have a YouTube channel, Defenders of Freedom channel. Um, in fact, if anybody wants to know a little bit more about the clinic, we've got a lot of videos on our YouTube channel so that people can go on, especially the veterans and see what it's like. It, um, and by the way, I got one of your, just your shout outs of calling the guys to, um, that you just saw calling them to at least consider it. You did an excellent job on that. So thank you. And oh, that's no why we do that because um, I can talk till I'm blue in the face, which I do a lot of times, but it really is hearing from other veterans. And it's when they hear other veterans talk about some of the things they've been through and to trust them, then sometimes they'll trust me too. And so um, that's why we do that. So thank you so much. You really did a great job on that. One. Oh God. Any, anytime, you know, that you just ask, that's no issue at all. You caught me on a day where I was wearing pink for the first time. It was, uh, I know. and look at you, you got blue on today. I know. Cause we got new stuff coming out. Awesome. Looks yeah. good. Yeah. Good we're working color for you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm trying this thing called color in my life where I don't look like I'm riding on, on a, on a horse. Like I'm the um, poltergeist. I'm really trying here. We're really going for color here in my late Donna. Okay. Um, but it's true. It's if people want to help. And a lot of people always ask, like, I never know about organizations. Do they use the money accurately? And this is, a, and this is why I wanted to have you on because you're one of the organizations that I can wholeheartedly say and, and say with a hundred percent that I trust where the funding goes. I know where the funding goes. I I've been to your events. I've seen the impact you have, and it's so much bigger than anybody can imagine. And that's why I say there's organizations that may in quotes, and I'm doing air quotes. If you're just listening, look bigger, but they do not impact bigger. They do not make you know, the world go around the way that you do for veterans. And so I want people to go and support you and help you, but you also have an event coming up in May. Yes. Yes. We have our 17th annual golf outing and uh, it'll be a lot of fun. We'll, we'll have about 60 to 65 post nine 11 veterans. If we put a veteran on, on each team and um, it is just so much fun. It's, I think that's the reason it's been so successful. We'll play on two courses simultaneously. And um, it's just a, it's a wonderful event. Looking forward to having you and Brady there. Yeah, I'm really excited. I feel really bad for the team that has to be attached to me, but that's going to be fine. That's going to be totally fine. Well, you know what, Kelsey, most of the veterans who have come in the beginning have never played golf before and no one cares. Everybody understands <laughs> that it's about supporting the veterans more than it's about golf. But so many of the veterans have taken up golf because of coming to this event and realizing that they love it. And so it's really just so patriotic, fun-filled day that golf is secondary, really. I'm so excited. I cannot tell you how thrilled I am for Brady and I to be coming down to that, but also to expose my husband to what community in the veteran in the veteran world really should look like. Because uh, yeah. in Canada, we yeah. just don't have the weight of it. And so I'm, I'm really glad and I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm grateful to be able to have gone through the program and you to not look at the flag on my arm and say, no, nah, we can't take her. Because at the end of the day, you take almost everyone. But what I did want to find out for those who are listening, if there is an individual, how far back, what is the criteria for defenders of freedom to get funding um, for a program like the TBI? Okay. So um, we help post 9-11 veterans that have deployed pretty much. We, um, we will help veterans before post 9-11 if they can bring their own funding. Got if it. someone wants to donate to us on behalf of, of like a desert storm veteran, we will use that money 100% to cover that veteran if the person wants to make a donation for tax write-off. 
my right. board, because we did have a couple requests. And so my board said, yes, absolutely. If you can, if they can bring their own funding, we will help them and get them through. I'll treat them the very same way, help with the process. And I do make the process pretty painless for them. Yeah, you um, do. That AW2 at Fort Campbell, she helped me learn how um, simple it needs to be for veterans with TBI because the struggle is so real for them on details and stuff. So mm -hmm. on my end, I make it as painless and seamless as possible for everybody. So is that, is that year, so 2004, is that really where the DD214 needs to rate? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And I love helping veterans who got out early on. Um, well, no, 2001 would be post 9-11, not. So I wasn't sure when you guys deployed and when that started to roll for you guys. So that's why I wasn't hundred percent on the year. That's why I wanted to clarify. So really from like 2001 on is what is, is in your scope of, of individuals. Yes. Okay. Yes. Everything okay. post 9-11. Um, and I love getting the ones that were like my son, Matt got out in 05 and he didn't go through brain treatment till January of this year. But, um, and he was, he was high functioning and all that, but so many that 05, 06, 07, those people were pushed out so fast and they didn't get the care they needed. I love when we get ones that have been struggling all these years that have, that have hung on. So many didn't hang on. They lost hope and they gave in to their demons um, and they lost their battle. And so I love when we get those that are, that are just barely hanging on and we're just like, hey, you know what? We're going to help you. And I'm sad that it took so long to help them, but I love that we can get a hold of them and, and change their life. That's okay because it's better late than never. And that's Absolutely. the difference. It's Absolutely. better late than never. Oh, Donna. Yeah. I you always are... just tell them, thank you for hanging on. So, and I love that you thank them for God's sakes. People need to be thanking you. Well, I just feel like I'm paying forward and give them back to them for what they've done on my behalf. So you always blow my mind when I talk to you. I have so many people who literally sit there and say to me, like, I pray for her. I sit in meditation and thank her. Like if you could only understand the amount of individuals that speak positively about your name every single day that goes by on this planet, Donna, you've not only wow. left a legacy, but you are leaving a mark on the veteran population and the rest of the world in ways that I don't know that you will really comprehend um, because it is yeah. impactful. Like I've never seen. Well, thank you. And, and I don't know that. Um, honestly, I, I mean, I have so many that I love that are like, I said, I birthed three sons and I feel like I have like 300 kids but, and I love that, but I'll tell you when I go to bed at night, I don't think about all of that. I think about who else is out there that doesn't even know that who's just hanging on a thread that we need to get to. That's what drives me for the next day. Um, well, not, I'm, I'm not good at looking in the rearview mirror at all. So I just know the needs are huge. They're out there and we've got a ton of work to do. And, you know, I don't know if I told you this or it, maybe it was when I was talking to Brady. I think by being out at that airport every day and watching those faces that came through and I shook, I shook tens of thousands of hands that personalized all of this to me. And I have, uh, I have pictures, thousands and thousands of pictures of those faces that are out there struggling. And I know they're struggling. And I think that's what has made a difference for me in realizing the enormity of this, which is why we have to work together with other organizations. No one organization is going to get it covered. We have to be collaborative. We have to, you know, pull our resources together and be supportive of those who are, are doing the good work too. And there are many out there. There are, there definitely are, but I got to tell you, there's a lot that are trying, but you know, they're not, the impact does, it, it does not even come close to the weight of what Defenders of Freedom does. I know for a fact that I wouldn't have a husband on this planet uh, without Defenders of Freedom and Ron and you guys being willing to have the conversations and, and put up the way you did. So you will always have um, a special place in my heart and in my family and, and everyone else around me um, is grateful because they got a little bit 
better version of, of not only me, but my husband back and, and my child will be grateful for you for the rest of his life to be able to keep his mom. So, you know, you, you don't need to look back. We'll always keep reminding you as you look forward, because it, it doesn't go unnoticed. It doesn't, it, no one loses that uh, gratefulness for you. If anything, it grows every single day that I get to go without having a migraine. I get to go without being dizzy. I get to go without feeling sick. I get to go with having energy and doing and living my life's purpose because of people like you and you standing there on the tarmac, shaking hands, putting the effort in and putting all your weight behind something that so many have now, ever since the war has been over, just forget and you have never forgotten. And that's why you will always have everything you need for me at any point. And, and my listeners and everyone around me are grateful to you, Donna. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You're so welcome, my dear. Okay. Well, we will make sure to put everything in the bios so that everyone can come follow you, find you, help fund you and do anything we possibly can for Defenders of Freedom. But do you have anything else that we need to know for individuals listening to this episode? If you're struggling, don't hesitate to reach out because I, I can guarantee you, we can help you. Can't make you who you were when you were 20 years old, but we definitely can make a difference for you. She will. And she means that. So Donna, you stick with me, everyone else, Donna Cranston. See y'all next week.